welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. With one in five Australians experiencing a mental disorder, can what we eat really make a long-term difference to our mental and brain health? Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Kate Agnew, and today we're very lucky to be joined by guest Dr. Joanna McMillan, who's going to be talking to us about the latest science on how dietary patterns may impact our mood and overall mental well-being, and a topic that has always been important but seems even more relevant now than ever. Uh, We're going to cover some specific foods that help our brain and our mood with a particular focus on the Mediterranean diet. And I'd like to say a very special thank you to Cobram Estate for supporting this podcast episode. So many of you know Dr. Jo quite well. She's a PhD qualified nutrition scientist, accredited practicing dietitian, and one of Australia's favorite and most trusted health and well-being experts. She's hosted Gut Revolution on ABC's Catalyst and appears regularly on TV, radio, online, and print publications. She's the founder of Get Lean, an online lifestyle change program. She's an accomplished author of eight books, including her very popular Brain Food and the Feel Good Family Food Plan. And just recently, she released a new audio book called Gutful. And she, uh, Joe, is also a nutrition consultant and partner to Carbon Estate. So, welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I always love chatting with you, Kate. <laughs> oh, likewise. You just have this unique and natural ability to translate complex science into such simple everyday messages that are just so engaging. So, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast oh. to talk about food and mood. Thank you. Well, look, it's such an important topic and I'm really glad to, to be able to discuss it and, and actually offer some help because I think this is an area which has only recently been recognised as something that we have some influence over with our diet and our lifestyle. So it's a great topic to address. Totally. And it's an exciting time as well for dietitians to really kind of grow in the space and, um, and deliver value, isn't it? Absolutely. I think for far too long, um, you know, people have thought of, not that dietitians have put themselves in this space, but um, other people have thought dietitians only have something to do with weight control. Um, And it's so important for people to recognize that good eating is not just about weight control, whether you're underweight or overweight. It's actually also about pretty much every single aspect of your physical and your mental health. So to start recognizing that is, I think is really, really crucial because for far too long, I remember my early years as a dietitian and I ran a nutrition clinic and I remember a client leaving who was a healthy looking weight and the next person came in saying, why did that person come to see you? They're not overweight. <laughs> and I thought, goodness, is that what you think nutrition is only about? So this is what is what is important here for me for, for people to understand is it's not just about your calorie or your kilojoule intake. It is about the nutrients and the balance of foods and not just the nutrients, but the extended aspects and the uh, like polyphenols that we'll talk about and like um, other plant chemicals and other uh, compounds that are present in the foods that we eat that actually influence our health. 
Definitely. And so that's just a beautiful segue into setting the scene for today's podcast um, around food and mental health. So maybe to start us off, Joe, why do you think mental health is such an important topic for us to discuss as dietitians? Well, because we now understand that mental health is not, I think in the past there was such a misunderstanding or or just a complete, you know, ignorance around um, how the brain functions, how it works and the influence we have over it. I think we thought the brain was this kind of slightly aloof thing that we had no influence over. It's part of who you are and it's just there and it functions, you know, almost as if that's just the way you were born and that's the way that your brain works. Now, fast forward to today and we understand a whole lot more about the influence that our diet and lifestyle has over our brain. And we start to understand that mental health is not just about feeling a bit down or feeling a bit anxious. It's actually about the way your brain is functioning. So some people are much more prone to mental health issues than other people. And of course, the environment and the situation you find yourself in has a big uh, part to play. But it is also about how can we influence the way that the brain's working to help us to have more resilience, to be able to deal with stress, to be able to handle some of the things that, that happen throughout life. And diet has a very, very key role. So that's why it's exciting for dietitians to start moving into this area. This is not just the work of psychologists and psychiatrists and, and other medical experts. It really is about a multi-team approach where dietitians can play a very key role in helping people. Yeah, and I think the um, the team at the Food and Mood Centre and Professor Felice Jacker has really done a good job at sort of bridging that gap with her nutritional psychiatry area, hasn't she? Absolutely. And, and, you know, Felice's work is so important because, you know, she's speaking now at conferences around the world. Um, and, you know, she was telling me about a conference where, where she spoke in New York when we were still allowed to travel. Remember those days? <laughs> and she was in New York and so excited that all of a sudden the conference that, you know, the first nutritional psychiatry conference was absolutely tiny and suddenly there she was at a conference with so many people from so many different disciplines suddenly interested um, even on social media you know I've started following the hashtag nutritional psychiatry and realizing that there's all these people who are medics or they're psychiatrists or they're dietitians or they're clinical nutritionists and so on all sort of joining in and coming in and bringing together this sort of brains trust uh, is a good word to, to put it uh, to really sort of pull their knowledge knowledge to understand a little bit more about how can we best help people in this in this arena and it's also important because we've got rising levels I mean gosh the last year is a good example yeah. you know I think I have pretty resilient mental health but even for someone like me last year I had my real moments of anxiety where because we're living in this very unsure world and we're unable to travel I have family overseas and so on so you know people were worried about their financial security so we saw this massive rise um, and mental health, I think it is, if, if there's a positive out of this, it's that it has brought mental health to the front of mind of so many. So everything I'm being asked about at the moment is mental health or immune health. And, and, and that's, that's the good part about last year. And if we, if we can try to move forward to go, let's build on this knowledge and really uh, start to help people because it is such an, uh, uh, what's the word, a, a broad reaching problem right throughout different societies around the world. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Joe. And of course, we I understand obviously the the evidence base is still growing in this area. Um, but in terms of, of what we have now, um, are there specific foods which may improve our mood or brain health overall from your research so far? 
Yes, it's important to point out, look, it's always, the public always wants to know that. What do I eat for better for my brain? And, and it's, it's tempting to put these kind of superfoods up on, on the pedestal. And there are some foods that really stand out that I'll come to. But importantly, it is about the dietary pattern, as usual. It isn't about, I mean, if you eat just rubbish foods, I mean, Felice's work was a really great example of that. So they were using a modified Mediterranean diet that we can, that we can explain a little bit further. Um, and there's good evidence behind the Mediterranean diet for for not just for anxiety and depression and other mood disorders, but actually for general brain health. So even reducing the risk of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Um, But what was really, really important was even in people who were following a healthy diet for most of the week, if they were having junk food regularly, you know, so say they were having it a cup, even a couple of times a week, it still had the power to have a detrimental effect on their mood. So that's really important to recognize that it's not just about throwing it. If you've got a crappy diet and you chuck in a few of the foods that I'm going to say are good for your brain, that's not going to have much influence because most of the stuff that you're having is not right. So it's really important to look at the diet as a whole and get this idea and we can expand. This is true of pretty much any condition that we talk about. We're starting to talk much more about dietary patterns rather even than sort of individual nutrients and individual foods. So it's the dietary pattern that's really, really key. And certainly when it comes to the brain, uh, the Mediterranean diet is one of the most studied and it it stands out head and shoulders above um, other kinds of approaches. But there are some foods that are within the diet, within the Mediterranean diet, but may also stand alone. And there may be other dietary patterns that can be good. And the sorts of things that seem to be good for the brain are one, things like flavonoids, which are a group of the polyphenols. So flavonoids seem to be really, really important. I was just reading some research this morning on Alzheimer's disease, actually. And it was, again, it was pulling out the Mediterranean diet as being particularly helpful in reducing risk. But then they looked at the foods within the Mediterranean diet to see which ones were particularly good. And the one that stood out, fruit. Perhaps surprisingly, you think it's going to be leafy greens or salmon or, or, you know, beans, but actually fruit stood out. And the thought is that it's the flavonoids that are present in fruit. So so the same is true for for having a good functioning brain, because the way that your brain uh, works, um, you've got a genetic influence there as to which way you might go. And then, of course, a whole load of other environmental factors, um, which will switch you towards potentially increasing your risk or decreasing your risk of dementia or Alzheimer's or having things like mood disorders like anxiety and depression. So it is all about trying to get the brain working really, really effectively, trying to ensure that there isn't inflammation and trying to ensure that you've got good fuel sources for the brain and that it's it's well hydrated and all of these things make a difference. So the foods in the Mediterranean diet, fruit is definitely that standout, but other polyphenol rich foods includes our extra virgin olive oil. So I think extra virgin olive oil, I mean, I talk about it being at the heart of the, the Mediterranean diet, because it literally is when you look at the Mediterranean diet pyramid, it's literally right at the heart of the pyramid. And they use it um, in good quantities every single day. And we've still in Australia got this hangover of the low fat diet, I think. So people are still a bit worried. Even dietitians I speak to say, oh, but what about the kilojoules and all that oil? You know, we've got to stop being so bound by kilojoules. We've got to understand that there's all of these other influences of food and a kilojoule is not a kilojoule. So oil at the center, what it does is extra virgin olive oil is rich in polyphenols itself. It's got the right kinds of fats. So it's low in, I think we have way too many omega-3, sorry, omega-6 polyunsaturated fats in our diet. 
And so I think an advantage for the brain with extra virgin olive oil is that it has these very stable monounsaturated fats combined with the polyphenols. And it allows, it makes vegetables tastier. So you get this double whammy effect of pairing up the oil with salads and they, you know, they cook their vegetables in extra virgin olive oil, they drizzle it um, and they serve it, of course, as salad dressings, they tip their bread in it. Um, and then what happens is then you get this double whammy of the polyphenols from the oil, but it increases the absorption and utilization of the polyphenols in the vegetables and the other plant foods. So the, the extra virgin olive oil definitely stands out as a, as a particularly good anti-inflammatory food and one that has an effect on the microbiome. We know that we can come back to that at the gut brain axis. And then it has this effect of improving um, the intake of other foods. So, um, so definitely that. We've also in the Mediterranean diet got foods like nuts and seeds. We've got legumes like beans and so on, which are really, really rich in the types of fibers that fuel a healthy microbiome. They have small amounts of red meat, but I think it's really important. Uh, animal foods are on my mind at the moment because I keep getting asked about the plant trend and, and, and vegan eating. But actually when we look at the brain, the nutrients that are present in animal foods are really, really key. And it's very hard to get things like iron and zinc um, absorbed and utilized enough from our plant foods. So the fact that the Mediterranean diet does contain some, some meat um, and things like dairy foods seems to be really, really key. And then lastly, we've got our oily fish. So I mentioned omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. We've got way too many of them in the modern diet. They have exploded um, probably as a result of the advice to have less saturated fat and replace it with polyunsaturated fat for heart health. And now we understand that that balance of the these two groups of polyunsaturated fats is really, really key. So we're not having nearly enough omega-3s and way too many omega-6s. And that leads to a kind of inflammation in the body and an inflammation in, in the brain. So we've got to boost our omega-3s. And so the fact that there's regular oily fish consumption in the Mediterranean, uh, traditional Mediterranean diet is definitely part of it. And not just oily fish, but also seafood. So they have mussels and oysters and prawns and, and other crustaceans and, and mollusks. And these are really, really key as well. And, and foods that we don't eat enough of here. So it's really that combination of everything all together that is, is, is beneficial for the brain and for the rest of the body. And, and I guess what you're describing here, Joe, is really a dietary pattern, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It, it is. I think it's, it's so tempting to get hung up on specific foods. But, you know, extra virgin olive oil is not going to do you all that much good if you're just having junk food every day and then you were spooning in some extra virgin olive oil. You know, you might get some benefit from those polyphenols, but honestly, you're, you're just totally derailing what we understand diet to be. So, yeah, diet is complex. That's why it's so hard to teach people about diets why we've got dietary tribes where people you know sort of almost in a cult-like way decide that they're in a certain camp um, because it's so difficult to study diet because there's so many different variables um, so we have to start looking at these kind of dietary patterns and actually recognizing that there isn't only one way to eat healthily but there are some key foundations and it, ultimately, it comes down to eating real whole, minimally processed foods, foods that you recognize from the way that they were grown or the, the animal that they came from. Um, and that really is our key issue. So, you know, I think when it comes to brain health and mood disorders, part of the, you know, the first key step for me is to make sure let's limit ultra processed foods. Let's focus on having real foods and immediately you get an effect so I think the effect on mood and on brain health generally is coming, yes, from that dietary pattern. And it's coming from the polyphenols, as I mentioned, from the types of fat, 
from the fibers that then fuel the microbiome, but also from the nutrients. It's got to be nutrient dense. When we look at modern Western diets, they are associated with an increased risk of depression and anxiety. And there's a big swell of, of thinking and feeling and research underway to really look at, at the fact that it's a kilojoule dense diet, but it's a nutrient poor diet. And we know that certain nutrients are really, really important for the, for the brain. Uh, one of the research groups actually from Oxford University has been looking at a supplement that is now marketed. You can't get it here in Australia yet, but I'm sure it will be coming. It's available in the States now. And they were using a supplement that was a specific brain health kind of uh, bag of nutrients, including those long chain omega-3s, but also a whole bunch of B-group vitamins. So like vitamin B12, which interestingly is only available in animal foods unless you supplement um, but also B6 and other B-group vitamins, I think some vitamin C's in there, and it's a specific nutrient package. And they're showing phenomenal results in terms of improvements in brain health. So I do think when it comes, it, it seems, you know, if you'd asked me this a few years ago, is depression, anxiety related to a lack of nutrients and a poor diet? I'd have thought, oh, it might be, but I don't know. Now we've got pretty solid evidence that it really is in part about the brain function and the brain lacking in certain nutrients. Mm. Yeah, it shows how far we've come. Oh, for sure. And, and it is an emerging area of science. We don't know everything yet. Uh, mm. We really are at that proverbial um, tip of the iceberg in terms of, you know, I think if we talk again in another even five years, um, we'll have vastly moved on in terms of our understanding of the brain. And, and I think there's a whole lot of interest emerging in kind of therapeutic diets as well for the brain. And so this is all underway. And there's a lot of really exciting research underway right mm. now. Yeah, so speaking of which, um, obviously one of the more famous trials in this area was the SMILES trial led by um, Felice Jacker, whom we spoke about before. Um, and I believe that the key diet in that study was the ModiMed diet. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that, Joe, and um, and how it kind of went, went on to improve mood or some of those uh, factors? Yeah, so they called it the ModiMed diet because it was a modified Mediterranean diet. So essentially what those researchers did was say, there's some really good research behind the Mediterranean diet. Um, we've also got some good research from the States with the MIND diet. It was more focusing on cognitive decline. And they also used a kind of modified Mediterranean diet, combining it with a DASH diet. So essentially, the Australian group said, right, how can we modify the Mediterranean diet to be far more easily accepted and followed by an Australian um, uh, participation group? So that's what the modifications were. They allowed a little bit more meat. We're big meat eaters here in, in Australia. So I think they allowed a little bit more meat. They structured it in a way that allowed um, for uh, just particular foods that are much more prevalent or available here in Australia. It still had extra virgin olive oil at the center. There was about three um, to four tablespoons a day in the diet. And that's something dietitians always ask me about, well, how much extra virgin olive oil? It's really important that we move on from talking about, oh, just limiting, you know, I think even in my early career, everything was about limiting the oil and using tiny amounts and fat-free dressings. We've got to move on from that and stop being, helped, stop being scared of using. This trial used 60 mils of extra virgin olive oil a day. And some of the European trials have used even more. People didn't gain weight, you know, where they actually got health improvements. They were actually leaner. Um, the PREDIMED study showed their waist circumferences were down. So the MODIMED diet is essentially one that um, I've got the pyramid here in front of me. It's got the whole grains at the bottom. So it's not a low carb diet, but the Mediterranean diet isn't high carb. I mean, I think that's really important to point out. It's got kind of um, moderate protein levels. It's got moderate carb and it's got moderate fat. So it's actually a very kind of balanced diet in my view. 
So whole grains are at the bottom. It's got fruits and vegetables, um, six serves of veggies, three serves of fruit. It's got two to three serves of dairy. Then it's the extra virgin olive oil. They had a handful of nuts every single day. They were encouraged to have legumes, so beans or lentils, three to four times a week. And they had red meat three to four times a week. So a little bit more red meat than would be in the traditional Mediterranean. They had to have at least a couple of serves of fish, two or three serves of, of chicken or turkey or other poultry. They were allowed to have up to six eggs a week. So again, the, the eggs were slightly increased and then less than three serves of what they called extras. So that's our discretionary foods. And they were allowed to have um, a couple of dr drinks. So they were allowed to have wine, a couple of glasses of wine, but not more than that, which would be very kind of Mediterranean. And the last thing I think about that's important to say about the Mediterranean diet is it's not just about the foods, but it's actually about the way those foods are combined. So they gave them lots of recipes and things to allow them to have ultimately a really delicious diet. And I think that's a really key point that, that dietitians know, but often other people forget about when they put together sort of therapeutic diets that are really hard to follow in the long term. Um, it's not going to have a long term effect. So if we're going to have a real influence on mental health, it's got to be a diet, one that's delicious but that's also easy to put together because let's face it, if you're depressed or you're feeling really anxious, the last thing you want to do is to be spending hours cooking, shopping, being motivated to put together meals. So it also had to be quite easy to put together, really delicious. And then the last part about the Mediterranean diet is being able to sit down and eat together, you know, being able to have a uh, time out for mealtime. So there's like a kind of priority given to mealtimes that I think often in our Western way of living, we, we forget about that. You know, everything is just rush, rush, rush on the go. Food is often grabbed on the go and there's not much priority given to it. And therefore then not much priority given to the quality. So it's that way of eating the how as well as the what that seems to be really important. And ultimately what they showed was a, 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 a significant reduction in uh, depression and anxiety across the groups who and, and better results with those who were adhering far more closely to the ModiMed diet, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, another kind of probably key area to touch on is the association between the gut microbiome and mental health. Um, and I know this is probably a whole topic in itself, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but perhaps you could give us a synopsis of the science here and, and what it means practically. Well, this is to me, you know, for a long time since, you know, what was it, 25 odd years ago when I first trained as a dietitian, um, we understood that certain nutrients and a certain type of diet, we talked about the Mediterranean diet back then when I was training, but really the mechanisms were not fully understood. And it was thought to be simply down to nutrients or impacts on blood cholesterol or blood glucose, but the full mechanisms were not really fully understood. So the microbiome research that is still emerging, I mean, literally there are thousands, of, I can't keep on top of the papers because there's literally thousands of papers published every week. Um, what it, to me it is doing is starting to un uncover and unfold some of those mechanisms. So it's joining the dots between how diet impacts both physical and mental health. And what, what we're understanding now is that your microbiome one is developed very early in life, but then you have an influence on the microbiome throughout. It adapts very, very quickly. So while we may have thought in the past that it takes a long time for diet to have an impact on your health, we know that diet, your microbiome starts adjusting within a day or two to your specific diet, which is really extraordinary. It's, you know, we, we can't change our genes. It takes a little while for epigenetics to work, but your microbiome is fast. It adapts and changes very, very quickly. So you alter your diet, you alter the microbiome. And what we're really seeing now is significant patterns between 
the types of bugs, but but specifically, it's not it's not really about people talk about good and bad bacteria, and I think that's a really bad way to explain it because it's not really about there's not there are obvious bad bacteria ones that make you sick and give you gastro yes so those pathogens and we've got some really you know good groups of bacteria we think things like bifidobacteria and lactobacillus that are used often in fermented dairy um, and they're they're present in young children you know these sort of groups we think of as being good but it, that's a simplistic viewpoint actually the microbiome research is showing that it's the diversity of bugs and the balance of the different groups of bugs that are really important now how that relates to mental health is when things like fibers um, reach the microbiome, those that can be, not all fibers can be fermented, but those that are fermented, go on to produce a whole bunch of different metabolites, some of which are used within the gut. So things like butyrate can be used by the cells lining the gut. So they've certainly got a role within the gut for gut health. But many of them then are absorbed across the gut wall and get into the bloodstream and they're transported then around the body. Some of these metabolites reach the brain too. And we know that some of them can also cross the blood-brain barrier and then they have an influence on brain function. What's pretty extraordinary is that even dead bacteria can act as signaling molecules that can then, and there's a number of them, not just via the blood, there's different ways via the vagus nerve. We've got to communicate, think of that as a communication highway between the brain and, and the gut. We've got you know, the blood and we've got the lymphatic system. We've got literally ways of what's going on in the gut to communicate with every organ in the body. And so that's what's being uncovered, that what is going on in the gut, what type, what balance, the diversity of the bugs that are present in the gut, and maybe some specific species that are, have certainly been flagged as being of interest, are creating particular metabolites, communicating with the brain, um, and, and influencing both our mood, influencing brain function, and influencing potentially even our food choices and preferences and, and lifestyle choices, which is, is really quite out there to think about. Yeah. I don't think we're quite puppeteers just at the beck and call of our, our microbiome, but certainly these metabolites are influencing um, uh, the, the way that our brain functions and works. So it's kind of like joining the dots. It seems to be, and there's re good research um, looking at particular patterns of the microbiome, particular characteristics, um, and relating that to people who have severe or moderate uh, anxiety and depression. So the next question is, can we alter the mood by altering the microbiome? Mm. And that's really the question that researchers are trying to answer at the moment. We don't really know whether is the microbiome, are the patterns that we see in the microbiome associated with these mood disorders? Is that just as a result of, you can imagine if you feel a bit crappy and you can't get out of bed in the morning, that's influencing your food choices and influencing your diet. So is that what is changing the microbiome? Or is the microbiome itself influencing your mood? So it's that whole chicken and the egg. So we yeah. have to unpack all of that. We have to understand it. But certainly research like Felice's work that we've, we've talked about is starting to suggest that, well, hang on, if we can change the diet, change the microbiome, we get this effect on mood. So there's certainly plausible biological mechanisms whereby we can understand that, yes, it, the microbiome is involved. And if we change it, we get the positive outcomes we want. Mm -hmm. Joe, you mentioned um, polyphenols and flavonoids earlier. Um, how yeah. do they fit into this picture? Yeah, well, what's extraordinary, you know, when I first learned about polyphenols, it was kind of assumed that they were all absorbed and they were just, we talked, I, I try not these days to talk about antioxidants because that's only one of the things that these kinds of chemicals and plants um, do for us. 
and, and actually they can be pro-oxidant in certain situations. So it's sort of a, a little bit of a misnomer. It sort of underestimates what they what they do. Um, but we thought they, that's the only role they had. We absorb them and they act as antioxidants, mopping up free radicals. That was the sort of top level view. Now, actually, we understand that more than 90% of the polyphenols, so that includes things like flavonoids, it includes lots of the compounds in extra virgin olive oil, um, are not absorbed. They actually reach the microbiome. And this is where our little friendly gut bugs come in again, because what they, they utilize them. So there's even an argument at the moment. Some people are arguing that polyphenols actually should be in a termed prebiotics along with particular fermentable fibers that boost the growth of, of the, the beneficial bacterial groups. So this is the first time we've thought there could be a prebiotic that is not a fiber. So polyphenols actually are utilized by the microbiome. They need them. It encourages their growth. It's like, you know, it's like uh, not quite their fuel for energy, but they're essential. It's kind of like the oil in the engine, if you like. You need them to work really well. And we benefit too because they change these uh, polyphenols into more bioactive metabolites that then have an effect on our health. So as usual, it's showing us, one of the things I've been talking about a lot in the last year, I'm fearful that COVID and coronavirus uh, has made people much more germophobic again. We've, we've taken huge strides towards trying to teach people that actually you don't need antibacterial everything. Bugs can be good for us. And I've been talking a lot about the bugs that are in your gut as being beneficial for us, indeed essential. You know, we know from, from um, animal studies, if you wipe out the gut microbiome, those animals are not well and they can't live in the real world. So we know that these bugs are really, really essential to us. So I do have a little bit of a fear that um, the last year has made everyone germophobic again. Yes, we have to have good health, you know, hand hygiene and all that stuff to try and stop the spread of this particular virus. But it's worth remembering that the stat I've read is something like 95% of the microorganisms living around us, on us, in us, are not only not harmful, but they're actually beneficial. So the gut microbiome is just a great example of that. It really shows us that they're not just living there willy-nilly because it's a nice place to live and they get some food coming in and it's you know warm and, and hydrated in there. It's actually, they're doing us good. They are our partners in health. Um, and so they are converting what essentially polyphenols would do us no good whatsoever, and most of them would pass straight through us if it wasn't for our microbiome. So they're changing them into stuff that then does us good. So we know that the polyphenols, I mentioned the, the effect on the brain before and the association of fruit consumption with risk of Alzheimer's. So we certainly know that some of those polyphenols are having good effects in the brain. Um, so yes, it, it's a really hot area for the microbiome, for heart health, you know, what's good for the heart is good. I, lots of people have been saying this, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. I say, what's good for the gut is good for the heart, is good for the brain. And, and so we see these polyphenols having effects on, on literally throughout the body and it stems from what happens in the microbiome. Well, that's a great segue to my next question because I was going to ask you um, uh, in terms of, you know, the risk of developing other chronic diseases and the, and the bigger picture of chronic disease, um, mm. what sort of impact can mental disorders have on it and also, you know, the, the changes to the gut microbiome and mental health that we've been talking about in the context of other chronic diseases? For sure. Well, the, I mean, this is the amazing thing about chronic disease, or not really the amazing thing, maybe it's the, the fortunate thing about chronic disease because um, they're all interrelated. So it's not a good thing if you're on the bad path. And if you get one chronic disease, you're more at risk of others. So you've got type two diabetes, you're more at risk of heart disease. If you've got heart disease, you're more at risk of dementia um, and vice versa. You know, if you're struggling with anxiety and depression, inevitably, I mean, this is again, a chicken and the egg. 
inevitably you're at risk of some of these other chronic diseases. Um, not that I, I would necessarily term depression, anxiety is a chronic disease, but certainly dementia is. Um, but you're, you're, of course, that's impacting the way that you live, the way that you eat, uh, your social interactions, your joy in life. So inevitably then that affects the factors that we then know will, will impact your risk of heart disease or, or cancer or dementia. So they're all interlinked. But the good news is that it's the same path to help. So we might target specific foods or, and certainly there's some therapeutic diets. I don't sit in the camp of it's one diet fits all. There's lots of different ways to eat healthily, but certainly the key foundations are there. So, you know, we can adapt our diets and this is what we must do as dietitians. And we do do, um, is to, to really work at individualizing and finding the right diet for the right person. But ultimately, you know, taking that individual's genetics, cultural background, likes and dislikes, lifestyle, you know, all of these different allergies and tones and so on, all into account to be able to tailor them a diet that is going to reduce their risk. And the good news is it reduces their risk of pretty much all of their those chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. David Katz gives that amazing quote about more than 80% of chronic disease could be prevented if only we got dietary and lifestyle changes in place. So that's pretty extraordinary. So although chronic diseases, of course, have very different, different um, uh, pathways and, and uh, you know, how they come about and different risk factors and so on, they are interlinked. And which one you get will depend on that sort of interplay of your environment, your genetics, your diet, your lifestyle and so on. And I guess that's the interesting thing, because as dietitians, we're very familiar with the Mediterranean diet and, um, you know, the huge amount of evidence for its health benefits. But it's just really interesting to know, not only um, is it helpful for heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, but now we're talking about it in the context of mental health. So all those areas. Yeah, yeah which is phenomenal. And look, the, I mean, if I'm being honest, though, also the challenge with mental health, of course, is it's you know, if you've got someone who's at risk of heart disease or who has existing heart disease, they're highly motivated to change and it can be a really you know, good time to sort of intervene. The challenge that we've got with mental health is that it can be very, very difficult to make the kind of changes that we're asking them to do when you feel like crap. You know, how do we do that? So this is where also uh, therapies that come into play and it's why we need that sort of multi-team approach to be able to help people because it can be very, very challenging to make the kind mm. of changes. For all of us, it's hard to make changes, you know, um, and, and to keep those changes up in the long term. But um, that's that's where we have to work on. But the light at the end of the tunnel is definitely that, that you know, these changes do make a big difference um, and we can really help people by helping them to change their diet. Mm. Um, I heard Felice Jacka present a really interesting um, summary from a meta-analysis of 16 RCTs, um, and it was that dietary improvement has a meaningful impact on depression. And if delivered by a nutrition professional, it's much more likely to work and has an impact on oh. anxiety. So <laughs> isn't that just so promising? And I thought it was a beautiful summary of how dietitians can really make a difference in this area. Oh, how fabulous. I haven't seen that video. Mm send me that study I'll, I'll post that one up yeah look that's fantastic we are the trained people to help people with dietary change and you know I for many years I've been saying to my my co fellow colleagues that you know we need to really step up and own this space you know because we're all such nice people because that's who gets into allied health isn't it that people are nice and want to help other people and sometimes I fear 
our, um, you know, our niceness and not wanting to offend anyone and just continue to sometimes stops us from stepping up and actually owning the space and going, hang on, you know, I am the person who's trained to do this and trained to be able to adapt people's diets. And we've got to stand up for ourselves and, mm. and really understand help the public to understand that we do more than just talk about the Australian dietary guidelines. You know, that that is a totally different thing really to what a dietitian is doing at a clinical level, particularly when we're talking about therapeutic diets and diets to help people with whether it's mental health, heart disease, cancer, um, type two diabetes, uh, you know, sports, nutrition, whatever it might be. And I think that's what people don't understand about dietitians, that we are much broader <laughs> um, than talking about, I'm fed up of trying to defend us and the dietary guidelines, because the guidelines are guidelines that are supposed to be mm. population, you know, top line, kind of how do we get everyone eating a healthier diet is not what a dietitian is doing in a clinical kind of a setting. Yeah, that's so true, Joe. Um, sorry to jump back. I thought let's maybe just expand on um, maybe some of the challenges that dietitians might come across. You did mention before around, you know, um, patients or clients that aren't feeling well and, you know, mm. aren't do, doing good um, in terms of, you know, empowering them. Um, could you share some practical tips on how best dietitians can help clients where mental health is impacting impacting their ability mm. to, you know, prepare nutritious foods and um, mm. also maybe even the affordability of a Mediterranean diet and healthy diet? Yeah, look, that, I think that's a really good point. I, 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 I'll, um, there are people far more qualified than me to, than to talk about the really practical nature. I don't run a one-on-one -on -one nutrition clinic anymore. I'll just give that disclaimer. Um, but I think you, you give a really, really valid point about the cost of things. Now, police and her team, um, when they did the SMILES trial, they actually addressed this because it's an accusation we get a lot. Oh, well, that's more expensive. It's more expensive to have to buy you know, extra virgin olive oil and, and fruits and vegetables and whatever, rather than buying, you know, cheap fast food. And so they did a cost analysis of the diets. And in fact, they showed that following the Mediterranean diet was cheaper. It was, it, so it is affordable. So I do think that the public are often fed this line and, and gets regurgitated without anyone actually looking. Now, I, I do, I've also seen research that has shown, you know, an apple is more expensive out in some rural areas than it is for me here in Sydney. So look, I do think there's, there's, there are um, differences across the country in terms of the affordability of food and the availability of fresh foods. But nevertheless, you know, these kind of research that showed actually a well put together diet. And, and I think that was also why using the ModiMed diet was important for Australia, because it ut utilised foods that are readily available here. Um, so, you know, the Mediterranean diet, I think, works well for most Australians because it does use familiar foods to us. We do have a good supply of Australian grown produce. Um, and, and, you know, and of course, the extra virgin olive oil industry here is leading the world. I mean, we have a phenomenal industry here that I've worked with for many, many years. So we have some of the best oils in the world here. And it's very, very affordable. You know, I mean, I, I know I'm a partner of Cobram, so forgive my bias, but Cobram I know most about. I mean, their, their supermarket range of extra virgin olive oils are winning worldwide awards, yet they're really affordable in the supermarket shelf. And when you look, we've done a cost analysis of what it costs for the bottle of oil and what it would cost if you bought 
all the ingredients that, like the polyphenols and the squalene mm. and the, whatever else is in there. If you bought those as supplements from this health food store and you bought the oil itself and you try to add all of those up together, in fact, the cost analysis is pretty phenomenally in favor of, of buying the, the whole oil. So, you know, I think I think it's it's important that we help break down that misconception and help people to know how do we do it on a budget friendly way. So one of the things I often talk to people about when I'm doing because I do work with with groups and a lot of sort of, you know, uh, uh, corporate groups and so on. And when I speak to the public, I talk about the fact that you don't need to get imported berries from the Amazon rainforest. You can buy your local blueberries in season or your strawberries are in season. You don't need to buy the expensive, you know, I'm a fan of quinoa, but let's be honest, it's much more expensive than pasta is. And so for a family that's living on a budget, you know, maybe not, you know, they're not going to spend $20 on the, on the packet of quinoa. They're going to buy the three or $4 packet of pasta. So I think making sure that we do budget friendly meals and we make sure um, that, that we give information to people that is doable and realistic. In terms of working with people who have got mental health, I do think there are a lot of resources and, and in part it will depend on what their, what their financial situation is. But, you know, there's lots of companies, for example, that will deliver, you know, recipes mm -hmm. and, and meals that you can then put yourself or deliver the ready-made meals. I think we can give advice as to what's available in the supermarket shelves. There are some good ready-made products that they can have. Because if you get them on the stepping stone to the right kind of diet, as they start to feel better, you can potentially then move them into cooking a bit more themselves and doing a bit more. So you can give a Mediterranean diet that is very, very simple to put together. Perhaps start with some very, very simple meals you know, that are, are easy to do, um, sauteing some mushrooms and extra virgin olive oil and having a couple of boiled eggs and some sourdough, whole grain sourdough with some avocado for breakfast, right? That's an easy meal to put together not, you know, I don't know, making a frittata and, you know, things that might be a little bit more complex for people. Mm. So we could do the same thing for dinner. How hard is it to, you know, give really simple salads with, you know, I use my plate model to try and teach people about how to throw together a meal. So I think it's about putting our practical heads on and really understand giving them the tools and recognizing that it might be baby steps to mm. understanding where they're from. I did as part of Catalyst um, when we did the Gut Revolution show, mm. um, uh, we, we actually had a couple of people who didn't make it onto the end edits of the show, but one of the people I worked with, uh, he suffered had, was a long-term sufferer of depression and he had an in, his wife was Indian. And so I got them onto a Mediterranean diet that I actually modified to be a kind of Indian Mediterranean diet. And that was kind of interesting because she did a lot of Indian cooking at home. And, but they liked the idea of the Mediterranean diet. And so essentially it worked brilliantly. And he had made massive strides and said he'd felt better than he had done in years. Um, but I recruited the help of the family. So that might be something else that dietitians can try rather than always just working individually with your client is to actually incorporate the family. So I got his wife and eventually he started doing more cooking too. But she started adapting. So she was making her dowels and her chickpea curries using extra virgin olive oil. I said the spices and things that she was using were fantastic. They were all anti-inflammatory. And then they incorporated, you know, more, um, they did have a little bit of red meat, they, but they did incorporate lots more sort of veggies and fresh fruits and whatever. So we just kind of meshed together the Mediterranean diet and her more traditional Indian mm. diet and got um, great results. So be adaptable, use our skills as dietitians mm. to be able to pull together different foods and, and make it individual to that person. Mm, I personally, from that um, 
episode series, personally remember your hack about creating fresh chippies with potatoes and olive oil oh. in the air fryer, which is yeah. genius. <laughs> Honestly, my, I have two teenagers, so we must do that at least twice a week. So, yeah. and it's not, and look, I'm a Scot, so I feel like I'm always defending potatoes, but you know, potatoes are just such a what could be, I mean, they're straight out the ground. I mean, we used to dig them out. That My mum used to send us out to the garden to dig up the tatties for dinner. So, you know, to me, they've always been a whole food. It's what we do to potatoes that where it goes so wrong. So, yeah, mm. that's a great example. You know, as long as you have potatoes, they're in their skin. You toss them in your extra virgin olive oil, maybe some herbs and spice or you know whatever you want to put in there. Pop them in the air fryer or pop them in the oven as I did last night. And, you know, you've got a great food and, and it's a whole food. And you've added your good fats, you've got your polyphenols, there's actually a whole bunch of nutrients in the potato that we forget about. So yeah, so that's, that's a really good example. And those kind of practical tips that stick with people um, are, are, are great. And with the family, actually, that I did those chips with, I mean, they were, they had young kids and, you know, sort of uh, fish and chips was a regular meal for them. So it was a, a meal makeover I did. Um, but just giving them that sort of practical meal to make at home was just was just um, making it applicable to them using a food that they are accustomed to and used. But instead of buying, you know, the bag of frozen chips or getting the takeout, showing them how to do it themselves. And she was like, I can't believe I've never done this because it's mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think we could probably talk about beautiful Mediterranean food all day, Joe. Um, but we probably should wrap up. Um, I wanted to maybe finish on getting your opinion on kind of what you think one or two key things dietitians could really take away from this podcast to help their clients and patients eat their way to happy. Um, look, I think it is about one, get into this space, you know, and start working as a team. I mean, I do think it's too often as dietitians, particularly people in private practice, and I know this from experience from my years in private practice, is it's, it's so often you end up being on your own. And it's really important to be working as part of a team. So the more it's easier for, for dietitians who are working in a clinical setting and, you know, in a hospital or with a GP group or whatever, to be connecting with other health professionals. But I think for those listening who are in private practice do reach out and be associated with a medical practice or and you know a psychologist wherever so that we get this team approach because I think that's important for mental health so we can start working with other um, health professionals and and giving the, the best support the second thing is to really get up to date on understanding what sort of things are important for mental health really get to grips with that whole not just the Mediterranean diet but the other aspects that might be important for for diet and lastly, recognizing which nutrients are really important. So this emerging stuff on the B group vitamins and, and the nutrient density of foods, I think is going to be a big player um, in future, not just for mental health, but for other um, brain disorders and brain health overall. So there's some exciting research there. So, so stay on top of it. And there's some, some good people. Follow that hashtag nutritional psychiatry is a, yeah. is a good start. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, I'm always in awe of your incredible wisdom and ability to take science and make it meaningful for us as dietitians and also the healthcare we provide. So it really is such a pleasure talking to you. So thank you for the awesome. chat today. Thanks, Kate. Thanks everyone for listening.
And thank you, yes, for everyone for tuning in. Um, also another special thank you again to Cobram Estate for supporting this podcast episode. Um, and we'll also pop the uh, URL to the Olive Wellness Institute on the show notes um, if you want to check out their website because there is a lot of emerging evidence around olive oil um, on that website as well. And, Joe, I believe you've got a podcast there as well that you recorded with them. I do. Them. Yes, I've yeah. done a podcast for the Olive Wellness Institute. And that's, Luke, that's a great, just to give them a little bit of a plug, it is a really good resource for all um, research pulled together. You can actually look up individual um, areas of the research and see the papers, click through to the papers and read them for yourself. So rather than having to search through, you know, PubMed or Medline, you can, you can go straight there and see all Mediterranean diet and extra virgin olive oil papers. Great tools as well, like the oil comparison resource. And um, yeah, yeah, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> it's your go-to site for everything extra virgin olive oil, basically. And actually not just extra virgin olive oil, olive products. Uh, you know, there's olive leaf extract and, uh, you know, there's other products that are coming out that are kind of really interesting to look at the research behind those. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Kate. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.